1: Welcome everybody to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Payton. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, an omnibus episode all about the Get It Done Act. Coming up, what you need to know. We respond to your questions and blush at some kind comments about our first video podcast. And in your column, my column, I'll focus on a special get together, more than half a century in the making, that took a break from mindless partisanship for just a couple of hours. And I'll chatter just a little bit more about that Get It
0: Done Act. Spoiler, I'm not a fan.
1: It's Friday, February 23rd, 2024, so let's get to it. Hey, partner. Hello. You know what's a good sign? Uh, What is a good sign? I'm about to tell you. It's a good sign when you do your first ever video edition of a podcast that you've been doing for four or five years and they invite you to come back and do it again the following week. Right. (laughs) it's a good sign. We were not canceled after the pilot. (laughs) We were not canceled after the pilot. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Yes. Give me a little fist bump on that. That's a beautiful thing. Okay, well, normally we start this podcast with an email that caught our fancy, but we're gonna mix it up a bit this week because last week was our first video episode of the podcast, as we indicated, and we got far more reaction than we normally do. So we're gonna hold off responding to multiple emails until later in this episode. And we're gonna dive right into events at Queen's Park this past week because MPPs were back in the saddle, so to speak, after a 10-week hiatus away from the building. You were there, John Michael, on the first day back. I watched it on TV, but you were there. What stood out to you? Uh, you know- it
0: always has the the feeling of the first day of school. Um, and in fact, as I was walking through the halls, one MPP did say uh, first day of kindergarten
1: to me. Who said that? You want to name names?
0: Uh, no, I will not name their names. Okay. Uh, treating that as off the record. Okay. Uh, uh, kind of. Um, you know, I, I would say everybody seemed energized for very different reasons, right? Um, the the liberals have a uh, still brand new leader. Um, and uh, Bonnie Crombie was uh, first of the day with a press conference in the media studio. and then. Uh, She attended the uh, traditional post-question period scrums. Uh, So, you know, uh, liberals feeling, uh, you know, energized and ready to take the fight to the government again. The premier, uh, conversely, also, uh, I I think, is... um, at least so far, is enjoying the idea of of tussling with Crombie, and and certainly as uh, the Conservatives have called her the the Queen of the Carbon Tax, and they've they've launched all of these uh, attacks against her. So they, they love that you just repeated that. I, I know, I know, <laughs> but uh, it, my my point is that uh, you know uh, Premier Ford really seems eager to sort of mix it up. Uh, you know, it, the the NDP uh, obviously um, uh, going after the government. I, I think most recently about the Court of Appeal defeat um, uh, over uh, Bill One Twenty Four which was the uh, government's uh, uh, wage uh, suppression legislation. Um, And then uh, the Greens, and we'll get to this a bit more in uh, in a bit, but um, Mike Schreiner, uh, very, very proud to introduce uh, his second MPP uh, to the Green Party. They
1: doubled the size of their caucus. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Been five years of work for uh, Mike Schreiner as an MPP, but he has doubled uh, the size of the caucus and and was very happy about that.
1: Well, let me pick up on the Crombie angle, because she is, of course, still trying to get her footing as the new Liberal leader. Uh, a new entrant to provincial politics as she is. She's been in municipal as the mayor of Mississauga. She was a liberal MP federally. So provincial politics is new to her. She does not have a seat in the legislature. So how is she trying to get attention for the causes that she cares about?
0: Uh, The traditional way to do this, and and we've seen this now with two liberal leaders because, of course, Stephen Del Duca uh, also did not have a seat in the legislature. You you show up for press conferences at the media studio. uh, Technically, you need an MPP to invite you to do that, but uh, Bonnie Crombie has no uh, problem finding a liberal MPP willing to invite There's her. There's still
1: a few down there, aren't there? Yes, what are, they? are they up to nine now? Uh, I
0: believe, yeah, it's, yeah. it's nine. And um, one of the things that came out in uh, the scrums after question period on Tuesday is that uh, Bonnie Crombie is still seriously considering uh, running in the Milton by-election. Uh, that will happen uh, with the, uh, oh gosh, I'm
1: Parm Gill, the departure of Parm Gill.
0: Uh, yes, with the departure of Parm Gill uh, for federal politics, uh, so we'll obviously be keeping an eye on that. Uh, she. I should let you know.
1: I'm the one who's supposed to have the senior moments <laughs> in this program, not you. I'm relying on you to help me when I have the senior moments.
0: Yeah, but see, I got like the 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 brain problem with my phone. I just I Google everything <laughs> now, and so my brain isn't actually used to storing things. Okay.
1: Um, <laughs> Moving right along, as they say. Yes,
0: uh, moving right along. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the Tories are quite happy to launch these attacks against uh, Bonnie Crombie. Uh, we did also get some definition there, uh, what the Tories mean when they accuse her of wanting to bring in a, a carbon tax, because this was kind of, it turns out, that what they're mo- mostly referring to is the fact that Bonnie Crombie ran for a uh, liberal MP, her federal career, in 2008. Uh, during that campaign, uh, Stéphane Dion, the then federal liberal leader, uh, had proposed uh, imposing a carbon tax nationally and cutting the GST. The green shift, he called it. Uh, Yes, indeed. And so they are uh, saying that, you know, Crombie uh, uh, supported that move. Therefore, uh, you know, she supports a carbon tax. Um, Crombie is is a bit more uh, opaque on this uh, topic, Uh, really refused to be pinned down about whether uh, the Liberals uh, still support the idea of of, uh, bringing a carbon, a provincial carbon tax uh, back to Ontario. Of course, currently Ontario operates under the federal carbon tax.
1: It seems to me the federal government is not completely clear that it still wants a carbon tax, at least uh, not for Atlantic Canada. So but that's another addition for another show. Let's pick up. I want to pick up on the green angle that you referenced a second ago, because, yes, indeed, there is a second green MPP at Queen's Park, an historic victory in a by-election in Kitchener Center not all that long ago. The MPP's name is Ashlyn Clancy, and I want to spell this for you because her first name is spelled A-I-S-L-I-N-N, but it's not pronounced Aslyn it's pronounced Ashlyn. How did she do in her first appearances at Queen's Park?
0: I just, I wanna say for a moment that, you know, there are a lot of like rituals and pageantry at Queen's Park and most of them I could take or leave. The ritual of a new MPP being presented to the house after a by-election win, they get marched into the house, they get you know, they stand in front of the Speaker, and uh, usually the, the, the party leader um, introduces them and says, and, and they now come to claim their right to take a, a seat in this legislature. Speaker, I have the honor to present to you and to the House, Ashlyn Clancy, member for the electoral district of Kitchener Center, who has taken the oath and signed the roll, and now claims the right to
1: take her seat. Let the Honourable Member take her seat.
0: It is one of my favourite rituals. I, I just love it. I, it and everybody whatever, applauds, right? Everybody applauds. Yeah. It's, it is, it is a, a moment of collegiality in the House as they welcome a new member. Everybody's on different teams, but they're all playing the same sport, you know? Um, Nicely and so um, this was slightly more special because, as we say, this is kind of historic. This is only the second ever uh, a Green MPP in the House. She got, I, I don't know if it's possible to rank whether she got more or less applause. She certainly got fulsome applause from uh, the assembled MPPs. Uh, there was a funny moment where, where, you know, you get marched into the legislature and she sort of, it was a literal misstep. She, she was walking in the wrong place. And, and Mike Schreiner had to sort of like... Like she did sort of very funny to me anyway. She was like sort of walking backwards like a robot in reverse. It was it was was funny in the moment.
1: I, I, you know, I don't know this for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was her first time she was ever in the legislative chamber on the floor of the legislature. Certainly not, you know, during a a session would have been the first time she'd ever been there. So she could be forgiven for making a wrong turn. Yes. Yes. I I think I might have done the same. (laughs) Well, let's pick up on the government's agenda here, because one of the first things the province is trying to get done in this session is pass a giant bill called the Get It Done Act. So we're going to do a bit of a deep dive on this now. First of all, What are some of the disparate elements that are in this mega bill?
0: Right. So this is uh, one bill with many uh, different sections uh, that it does a bunch of different things. Uh, It uh, bans tolls on new, uh, sorry, bans new tolls on uh, provincial highways. Um, It legislates a freeze in the rate of, uh, in the the fines for both Ontario driver's licenses and uh, Ontario photo cards. Uh, It implements automated license plate renewals, Uh, obviously, or maybe not obviously. Folks remember that uh, the government uh, did away with the fee to renew their license plates, but it didn't do away with the obligation to renew license plates. And so it turned out that a lot of people, when they no longer had to pay the fee, they weren't renewing their plates. And uh, the Toronto Star reported that uh, there might have been as much as a million drivers on the road. Whoops. Yeah, whoops. Exactly. <laughs> expired plates. Uh, notably, uh, one of the, the groups that was complaining uh, most about the the problems this was causing uh, was the Ontario Provincial Police, who were saying, like, we can't spend our days pulling over every single driver with expired stickers. Like, we need to figure out a solution here. And so the government is saying that plates will just renew automatically, except when there is a, um, a, a, some reason not to renew. So like a, an existing speeding ticket or something like that. Um, there is also a, a change to the environmental assessment process where, uh, for, uh, provincial projects like, uh, highways, most notably, uh, the government will be able to, um, expropriate land, uh, even before the environmental assessment is complete. Uh, So for the uh, 413 highway, for example, this is one of the big provincial priorities Mm -hmm. right now, um, the the government is able to uh, start uh, acquiring the land to build that highway, even though the environmental assessment is likely to take many years. Mm And then uh, finally, the government is re-reversing, I think I can use that word. Re-reversing. Re-reversing its decisions on uh, urban land expansions. These were um, a a bunch of cities across the province. The government stepped in and uh, expanded the amount of land that these cities could expand into, you know, farmland, that they they could turn into subdivisions. Then late last year, because of the unpopularity of certain other land use decisions this government made, uh, they also... uh, They reversed that decision, uh, and then they are now saying, having consulted with these cities, because some cities were saying, actually, we do need to expand our urban boundaries. Um, The the government is now using legislation to re-expand some, but not all of those urban boundaries. Uh, Ottawa and Hamilton are being left alone.
1: That's a lot in a mega bill, and we're not done. (laughs) There's more. The province is also hoping to pass an unusual requirement to hold... A referendum in the future if what? If any future government wants
0: to introduce a uh, carbon tax, and I think we would say generically that the the government would hope this would also include uh, the cap-and-trade system that they inherited and dismantled, um, that any kind of carbon pricing would require a referendum to be held and obviously would uh, require a majority of voters to approve that uh, carbon price.
1: Let me just make sure I understand this. The current government of Ontario is handcuffing future governments for the rest of all time in passing any new carbon tax or putting a price on carbon forever unless they hold a referendum and get the public's permission. They are trying to. Well, if passed, yes, (laughs) Yes. if passed. But that's the idea. That's the idea. Would it be churlish of me to point out, maybe it would be, but I'm going to do it anyway, the Mike Harris government tried the very same thing about 25 years ago, but at that time it was... There must be a referendum if any future government wants to raise taxes. And in fact, and that bill did pass, in fact, a future progressive conservative government did want to raise taxes. But they simply passed another law saying, we're going to have an exemption to the referendum law for these tax increases. And then they promptly legislated those tax increases, all of which is to say, Do these laws requiring referendums in the future actually mean anything at all?
0: I'm going to get into this a bit more for the uh, your column, my column Mm -hmm. bit. So I will just for now, I will say no, they do not really handcuff future governments at all uh, in a in my call. And I, I described it as performative nonsense. And uh, I, I will elaborate on that later in the pod. Okay, <laughs>
1: we'll come back to that because that's a good subject for discussion. We've been calling this a mega bill. We've been calling it a giant bill. In fact, the technical term for what the government is trying to do here It's called an omnibus bill and I took enough high school Latin to know that omnibus means for all or for everything and essentially what it means is the government is going to throw everything but the kitchen sink into this bill even if disparate elements in the bill have no particular relationship to one another. It's an approach. What do you think of that approach?
0: Uh, I will also add uh, the uh, omnibus was one of the first forms of mass transportation in uh, early uh, in industrial cities. But that's a, perhaps a nerdy point for a different podcast.
1: Definitely a McGrath point. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, these kinds of bills, you know, it's it's a tool. Right. And uh, I think the classic example of an omnibus bill is like the, the budget measures bill that gets introduced. Right. The finance minister gets up. He gives a, a big speech about all of the ways that the government is going to change policy uh, to uh change the, the the financial situation of the province, they would say for better. Um, and, you know, by necessity, that can end up touching a, a lot of different parts of provincial policy. And so you, you need a, uh, a bill that touches, that, that does a bunch of different things to match the budget plan. Except that. <laughs> In this case, you know, and I, I think, I think a lot of people would say that Most modern governments have relied on omnibus legislation more than is strictly necessary. And in a case like this, it's especially when, frankly, a lot of the things that this bill does are um, symbolic. Maybe Uh, maybe I won't repeat the word performative. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just much more opportunistic.
1: And I have seen instances in the past, and I'll admit not many, but there have been some, where speakers of the legislature, who are often MPPs from the governing party, have told the governing party... I'm sorry. This violates the spirit of democracy. You can't have this many disparate elements in a bill which have nothing to do with one another and put them all in there together. It's just not appropriate. And they have said to governments in the past, you got to take some of that stuff out and and try and pass it separately. Which, of course, if they've got a majority government, they can do. But it's about the... It's about the appearance of of doing democracy properly, I guess is the way I would put it.
0: The fundamental point here is that MPPs are supposed to have the opportunity to debate matters uh, properly. And when you shoehorn everything into one bill, sort of by definition, you're forcing the opposition to constrain the amount of time that they devote to any one part of the bill. Um, And and that's also true with budget bills, which are are always, uh, I believe they're almost always time allocated, right? Mm -hmm. You you, you have a certain amount of time to pass the budget. Um, You know, with something like this, uh, yeah, I mean, these things sort of all hang together a little bit if you sort of squint at it a little. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, the speaker does still retain the authority in in, in some cases to tell a government, you know, actually, you, this needs to be broken up and, and you need to give MPPs uh, the, the ability to do their jobs.
1: We want to earn our bona fides here as a deeply nerdy podcast. So I am going to reach into... The dark recesses of my memory and recall, I think one of the most controversial omnibus bills ever passed, and this was in the federal parliament, and we're going back to the late 1960s now. John Turner, the former prime minister, was at this time the minister of justice and attorney general for Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. And Mr. Turner wanted to make a bunch of changes to the criminal code in Canada. He wanted to legalize abortion under some circumstances. He wanted to legalize homosexuality, which, if you can imagine, was illegal in Canada at that time. He wanted to change the rules around divorce so that, again, if you can imagine this, so that you would not have to go to the Parliament of Canada to get permission from Parliament to get a divorce. And he wanted those and other criminal code amendments to pass. And Prime Minister Trudeau said to him, you got to do it in an omnibus bill because this is going to be – fraught, and we're going to go do it and do it all at once. And Mr. Turner, I would suggest to his credit, said, no, I want to break it up. I don't want to do them individually. But the prime minister wouldn't let him. And at the end of the day, it's the PM's prerogative, and the PM told him to do it all at once, and he did. And if you prefer the way it is in Canada today, under those three categories and more, you can thank John Turner for that. So there we go. Anyway, let's move along. On to your column, my column. Okay, time now for our regular feature, your column, my column, in which JMM and I reminisce about the columns we wrote for TVO.org over the past week. JMM, you gave us a little hint of what you want to dive into again, so fire away.
0: Yeah, so I wrote about the uh, Get It Done Bill or Get It Done Act that the government has introduced, and and I just want to sort of elaborate a little bit on, on my uh – uh, irritation uh, with this kind of uh, law, or, or rather the two elements, the, the referendum on the carbon tax and uh, nominally prohibiting uh, road tolls um, on uh, public highways. Whatever you think about the policy merits uh, of those positions, the fact is it is a fundamental principle of our constitution that you cannot bind the hands of a future legislature by passing simple laws, which
1: they're trying to do right which now. Which is
0: what they are trying to do. Um, and uh, you mentioned the history of uh, the uh, the Harris government uh, passing what they call the Taxpayer Protection Act. Again, it's it's like it, it's it's nothing to to get around these laws. Um, and what I think it does, though, is it just it it leaves people misinformed about what our governments do and how they work. Um, and uh, we are an educational broadcaster, and I, I, I'm somewhat partial to the idea that people should be properly informed about how <laughs> governments work. Um, so. Yeah, uh, this irritates me, um, and and that's quite aside from the fact I actually support the idea of like road tools and uh, carbon pricing. In both those cases, my views remain unpopular. <laughs> but that, that's really aside beside this this particular point.
1: Okay, are you ready for a bit of a story? I am. absolutely. Get comfortable here because I did a column this past week on something that basically was half a century or more in the making. For 52 years, there's a former finance minister in Ontario back in the 1970s named Darcy McHugh. He was Bill Davis's treasurer, and he used to host an annual, what he called the John P. Robarts Annual Luncheon. And it was a luncheon that he started to honor his mentor and political hero, Mr. Robarts, who was the first premier to put Mr. McHugh in the cabinet, as he did in the 1960s. Then after Mr. Robarts died in 1982, Mr. McHugh kept this luncheon going in memory of the former premier. And I don't know how long ago this was now, was it 15, 16, 17, I don't know. know—that A while ago, I wrote a book about John Robarts, and so I got invited to this lunch as well uh, over the last many years. Now, last December, the lunch was always in December. This past December, the lunch didn't happen. It didn't happen because Mr. McHugh got sick and died. Age 91, he had a good life. But the question then remained what to do about this annual lunch. So I decided, with the permission of Mr. McHugh's two sons, to try to continue it with a few changes. First of all, I, I renamed it the Robarts McHugh Luncheon to acknowledge Mr. McHugh's creating it in the first place. And second, with apologies to the former treasurer as he looks down on us right now, the guest list for the luncheon would no longer be exclusively white male <laughs> octogenarian or nonogenarian progressive <laughs> conservatives. We were gonna broaden the base a bit. Uh, all parties were going to be invited, all genders, all generations, most importantly. I wanted younger people there as well. Um, people who had been in public life, and it was really lovely to see all these people who, you know, when they were in politics were really trying very hard to end one another's political careers, were suddenly gathering together, there about three dozen of them, and really enjoying the fellowship of one another's company in the spirit of friendship. And I had no intention of writing a column about it. But Monty McNaughton, the former Ford-era cabinet minister, he was there. He actually represented part of the same part of the province that Darcy McHugh did. And he suggested, you know, the spirit in that room, people need to know about that. Pacon, you should write a column about that. And so I did. And I think we'll put the link to the column in the show notes, as we do for both of our columns. But if you want to find it, it's on the TVO website as well, tvo.org. Find my picture, click on it. The column will be there. There's some lovely pictures that we took on the day. Uh, I think my favorite is the current finance minister, Peter Bethlen-Falvey, flanked by three former cabinet ministers, Greg Cerbera, Floyd Loughran, Janet Ecker, all three different parties represented there. It was a nice moment. Um, Peter Bethlen-Falvey in another picture with Ian MacDonald, who's now 95 huh? and was the deputy minister of finance in the Robarts years. So that was kind of a neat moment as well. Anyway, lots of fun. Uh, there seemed to be a lot of desire in the room to have this be an annual thing, so... I think we're going to try to do that again next year.
0: You know, I think it's very easy to and and you know, there is legitimately uh, a lot of acrimony in politics. Um and you know, some acrimony is, is good and healthy. Yeah. Um and I think uh, you know, and this goes back to uh the the ritual uh of uh, you know that we were talking about with Ashlyn Clancy. There is also a lot of uh genuine um camaraderie uh in politics. Uh you know, I I I used the words, right? Like they're on different teams, but they're all playing the same game, and I think that explains some of it. That uh, you know, when these people leave Queens Park, uh, they they do still carry a lot of that time, the the, the memories uh, with them, and it's just it's not like anywhere else. You know, it's it's not like any other job, um, and and these people are part of a, what is still a pretty small club overall, right? There's only 124
1: MPPs, mm-hmm. and in a province of what are we up to now? Like 15, 15 million, people. Million, yeah. yeah, something like that. Yeah. So yeah, it's a pretty small club. Yeah. Good. All right, let's go on to our mailbag. We do love getting your feedback at onpoliticsattvo.org. And JMM, why don't you start? What do we got this week?
0: Uh, we have a bunch of questions and some very kind comments uh, from our listeners and now viewers. Uh, here is our first from uh, Jason Bazadian from Toronto, who asks, uh, Hi, Paken and JMM. Love the show and wanted to ask about the lieutenant governor note my pronunciation. Then. Beautiful. Nicely done. Yeah. Uh, how does one get the role? Is it purely an appointment or are there some nominal requirements? Thanks, Jason.
1: Well, Jason, good question. The answer is both. Now, let's go through this. The lieutenant governor technically is appointed by the governor general on the advice of the prime minister. Technically. Basically, the PM appoints who he or she wants to be the lieutenant governor in all of the provinces across Canada. It's usually a five-year term, but as we know, uh, during covid Uh, The federal government was just very content to let Elizabeth Dowswell stay there. She was doing the job so well. So she actually just finished the job in November after nine years as lieutenant governor, longest serving in Ontario history. The list of functions that an LG needs to fulfill includes representing the crown in Ontario, now the king, acting as sort of the official host of the province of Ontario at special events, They often pick particular causes that they want to champion. They recognize outstanding citizens. You know, they preside over the Order of Ontario ceremony every year. The LG also, a lot of people don't know this, the LG has to sign every bill before it becomes law. So nothing becomes the law until it gets, quote-unquote, royal assent. And you get that when the lieutenant governor signs the bill. It is also the lieutenant governor's job to advise, listen to, and warn the premier of the day about what he or she is hearing now Edith Dumont, Edith Dumont en français. She is the new lieutenant governor of Ontario, the first francophone to hold the office. She's got the job now, and uh, I haven't met her yet. Have you met her? No, I have not met. her I look her forward yet. to that day yeah. when it comes. Anyway, pick up the story if you would. Uh, you know, you already
0: mentioned uh, the, uh, the the causes that various LGs have, uh, uh, you know, traditionally brought to promise. I mean, with David Onley, of course, it was accessibility that was uh, an issue that. Uh, uh, he he cared deeply about because of his own life. Um, uh, Madame Dumont has a, a uh, history of, of advocating for uh, la francophonie. Um, and so I don't know if she's said that that will be her cause, but it wouldn't uh, surprise anybody, uh, uh, certainly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we will wait and see uh, uh, what she turns her, uh, her mind to.
1: Great. Okay, next up, here's a question from a viewer named John McMillan from Toronto who writes, Hi, Steve and John. Stumbled onto your podcast slash video debut on tonight's The Agenda after watching Jeopardy! He adds, signed up immediately to listen on Apple Podcasts. Fie on me for not knowing about your show before this. It's okay, John. We're glad to have you now. John continues I note that at the end of each Ontario government TV advertisement now includes a musical jingle or tag similar to the O Canada tag in the Government of Canada's ads. Ontario's musical tag appears to be the last few bars of Ontario, the province's 1967 centennial year anthem, A Place to Stand, which my generation, and I guess I can say which our generation, because I think John and I are in the same one, we learned that by rote. John's questions Does the Ontario government still own the rights to that song or jingle? And if so, which ministry owns it? And is it true that it was written by the same woman who wrote the old Hockey Night in Canada theme song, and as an aside, does the government really think that anyone other than boomers like me would get it? Great show. Looking forward to future episodes. We'll tell my friends John McMillan. Beautiful. Okay, John, thank you so much for that. Ontario, a place to stand, a place to grow, was in fact written by the same woman, Dolores Clayman, who did the hockey theme on Hockey Night in Canada. It was commissioned by the government of John Robarts, alongside the Academy Award-winning film, A Place to Stand. That was for Expo 67 in Montreal, when the World's Fair came to Montreal. The song's publisher is Gordon V. Thompson Music, so there is a good chance that the rights lay with someone else, as opposed to with the government of Ontario. We're going to put a link to both the song and the film in the show notes. There's also a defunct page on the Ontario.ca website that will post the archived version with a lot more info there as well. And look, let me say this outright. You don't have to be of a certain generation to love this song. Everybody knows this song, right? Do you know the song? Uh, You know what? I actually don't. Come on. (laughs) McGrath, this is why you still need me. This is why you're not hosting this show on your own. Give us a place to stand and a place to grow, and we'll call this land Ontario, a place to live for you and me. You still not no, nothing? No. Nothing.
0: I'm sorry, man. Okay. This was this was out of the schools by the time I was going
1: through but them. But they brought it back for the Canada 150 celebrations. Kathleen Winscott. Well, then I it was back. out of school by then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, anyway. It is a wonderful song. It is wildly nostalgic for those of us of a certain age. And I'm going to teach you the words before you're done here. Okay. Your turn. Next note. Boy, I, I just cannot wait. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Uh, here is one from Nelson Mamudi from Ottawa who writes, Hi, Jamin and Steve. Thanks for making such a great podcast. Love all the content and your coverage of complex topics, which make for easy listening while I'm on a break at work. Or, you know, just while you're supposed to be working, you could, listen to us anyway. We Why not? We're not going to tell. Nope. Um, two questions for you both. Uh, Steve, were you at the PWHL game in Toronto between Montreal and Toronto?
1: Let's take that one first. Were you at this hockey? Uh, Professional Women's Hockey League. I watched it on TV. I was not at the game. It's too hard to get tickets. They're huh? sold out for the whole of the year. Well. They're playing at Maple Leaf Gardens where it's, you know, like 2,100, 2,200 seats. So. Right. So no, watched, but not in person. Okay.
0: Uh, Number two, what's the difference between a Hamlet village, township, town, and city? Are there population thresholds that determine where certain municipalities fall for naming's sake? Uh, Nelson, this makes me so happy. I looked in the Municipal Act, but couldn't find anything. Help. Take care, you both. uh, Nelson from Ottawa.
1: This is such a John Michael McGrath question, the second part. So I'm definitely tossing this one over to you to tell us the difference between a hamlet, a village, a township, a town, or a city. McGrath, you're on.
0: Okay, so some of these names refer to, like, when the first uh, European surveyors uh, laid out, like, you know, farm lots in, uh, what would have then been upper Canada and like hamlets and townships were like, and and I guess villages would have been like the, the atomic particle of land, uh, that, that these, these surveyors created. Um, and those are sort of like the very, very small, uh, uh, smallest, not even municipalities exactly, but like smallest geographic increments, uh, of land uh, in Ontario. And then when you get into things like towns and villages, and are towns and cities in particular, like, no, there's no um, distinction uh, between uh, like, uh, uh, the best example of this is that what is now the city of Markham uh, was officially the town of Markham up until 2012, and it had a population of 300,000 people. It was the 12th largest municipality in the country, I think, if not, certainly it was one of the largest in Ontario. Um, and, and yet it was called a town. Um, there, were no, there are no rules uh, requiring uh, a town to start calling itself a city once it reaches a certain population or anything like that. It is left entirely up to the local councils and what they feel like calling themselves.
1: You had far too much fun answering that question.
0: I loved reading that question. I loved <laughs> answering it. Uh, and you know what? If people want to keep sending us really, really nerdy municipal policy questions, just know that, uh, viewer, I'm here for you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you give folks the email in case they want to do that very thing?
0: Oh, right. Yes. Um, the email is – what is, what is it's it? It's on politics at TVO.org. Right. If you'd like to ask about content on the show or just ask us random nerdy questions, uh, please email us at onpolitics at org. Uh, Make sure to include your first name, last name, and what city you live in.
1: Amen. Well, that is the On Poly podcast for this Friday, February 23rd, 2024. You can
0: follow our shows on Apple Podcasts so that you get notified each time a new episode is available. And if you already follow our show, help a friend follow it too.
1: Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it. Good, bad, or indifferent. Here's the email again on politics at tvo.org. And uh, we're happy to take all your stuff.
0: This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Video podcast edited by Colin Kish.
1: Production support from Jonathan Halliwell, Christine Gardner, Ariana Longley, Vito Tagarelli, Jeff Cusera, and Jennifer DeRosa. Our managing editor is Katie O'Connor. Lori Few is the executive producer of digital. John Ferry, vice president, programming and content. Special thanks to our wonderful studio crew here for making the video podcast happen. And until next Friday, bye-bye. See you soon.
0: Literally couldn't remember our email address. How, <laughs> how many times have I delivered Two that moments line? moments in one show. Yeah, <laughs> uh, my brain. It's the, the, the phones, man. They cause our <laughs> brains to I atrophy. I got it. I got
1: it.